10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. My desert island. All time. Top five. Those fucking Hobbit movies were boring as hell. All it was was a bunch of people walking. I just prefer the other Bullshit! How can it be bullshit to state a preference? Three movies of people walking through a fucking volcano. Excuse me, where's everybody going? To Gobbler's Knob. It's Groundhog Day. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one second, please. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I'm under the impression that I'm Troy Harkin. And this is our Top 10 Fantasy Films episode. This will be a two-part episode, our 13th and 14th episodes of Season 2, and brings to a conclusion our second season. We're recording it on Saturday, March 26, 2022, and it is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, April 2nd, and Saturday, April 16th. We do not have a special guest for this episode. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Push in the button. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. We are recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, Troy and I have known each other for many years. Let's not introduce our special guest. No. We have no special guest. Screw them. But as Pink would say... Let's get this party started. <laughs> All right. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. Uh, we refer to the speculative or just genre in general about science as science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I think Ed McCary and the Esquire editors said it best from Esquire.com in a review titled The Best Fantasy Movies of All Time to Transport You to Another World, published on April 2nd, 2021, may have said it best when they said, few film genres provide such an acute sense of escapism as fantasy films, whether you're entering a mythological land like Middle Earth in The Lord of the Rings, a spiritual realm like Kami of Spirited Away, um, a, a surrealist labyrinth like Alice in Wonderland and Pant Labyrinth, or a universe all its own. We seem to gravitate to the ways in which fantasy films can transport us to worlds that seem light years away with stories that lie close to our hearts. Troy and I are going to be looking at our own personal top 10 fantasy films and why they are our best 10. These are definitely subjective. We are going to start with number 10 and eventually finish at number one. If Troy picks his number 10, he will go into why. And if the film is in my top 10 list, I will mention where I have it and the reason why it is in my top 10 list. Then I will go into my 10th place finisher and we will repeat the process. We may also take a look at why certain films were excluded because they seemed more sci-fi or horror. In the piece I quoted, if you read the whole piece, they do mention The Shape of Water, which I felt more akin to science fiction than to fantasy, which is why it does not appear on my list. Um, let's keep 
going. So do you want to start, uh, Troy, and do you have any opening comments yourself? Well, I have a bit of a disclaimer because um, my approach to fantasy generally is more of fantastic things happening uh, to people um, sort of in this world, but not always, but not always. And I, I have very few films in my list that incorporate things like dungeons, dragons, swords, sorcerers, princesses, preciouses, goblets, goblins, gorgons, uh, wands, wizards, or waifs. Uh, no golden snitches or shires, I believe, on my list. But um, I still am firmly within the realm of fantasy. And I apologize to folks who love those things that I did mention. Um, but I'm sure between the two of us, we'll cover a lot of that. Um, yeah. So you wanted me to kick this off, David? Yeah, if you want to list your 10th place finisher, and as we mentioned, this is a subjective list, and in some cases, these may not be, just like 2001 might be our third or fourth science fiction film, but it's everyone understands it's number one. I just wanted to say, David, too, that as we, as we put this list together, like our previous subjective uh, favorites, um, how difficult that is, narrowing it down to 10. Um, you know, like it's, it's easy to get sort of a, a like a, a master list of your favorite films, but then narrowing it down to 10 was really difficult. There were a few films that I'll get to in the honorable mention section when we, when we finish up in our next episode that, um, I really like wanted to have in my top 10, but then I just couldn't justify it. I had too many. So those ended up being like number 11 or number 12. Um, and I won't spoil it by saying what, what those are. Anyway, having said all that, here is my top 10. And here is number 10. Well, I went with uh, Yellow Submarine from 1968, directed by George Dunning. Artwork, photography. Landscapes painted with beetle sound. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. We all live in the yellow submarine. The yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. The forces of good. The beetles. The boob. I must complete my bust. Two novels, finish my blueprints, begin my begin. Hey, Jeremy, must you always talk in rhyme? <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out. I don't know what I talk about. He's a real nowhere man Sitting in his nowhere land The forces of evil Robin, the butterfly stomper Snapping turtle turks <laughs> Bonkers, the terrible flying glove, the arch villain, the blue meanie. You could pass for the originals. Well, we are the originals. Checking on the Rotten Tomatoes site, it ended up with 95% on the 
tomato meter, which I guess would be like a 9.5 rating. But um, why do I love it? Well, this was not just my way of incorporating the Beatles once more into an episode. Uh, the film was, yes, early exposure to the Beatles, but also early exposure to fantasy films for me. We have a quest, a Homeric journey, uh, mystical lands, magical beings. We have kinky boot beasts, apple bonkers, snapping Turks, as well as a literal battle of good versus evil, not to mention some of the best music of the 20th century. I have no idea how often I've watched it at this point, but I will gladly watch it in the future every chance I get. And yeah, I think it really was my first exposure to the Beatles. And as a little kid, man, I found it really harrowing. Um, uh, and I heard a, re a really interesting story um, in that, Sean Lennon, son of John Lennon, um, when he first saw the film on television, that was the first time when he realized his dad was in the Beatles. And he actually said, after watching the film, he said, Dad, were you in the Beatles? <laughs> and, uh, and John fessed up. So uh, I, I thought that was kind of a funny little story. But yes, it's uh, probably an odd choice for many, but that's my number 10, Yellow Submarine. I remember watching that. I think I'm going to have to give it a rewatch, um, definitely, because I just found it to be an excellent uh, film when I watch it way back in the 70s or whenever it was. And just how unusual the animation, the music and what have you, like the, the, the whole story was just kind of very quirky and they they definitely had a sense of humor. The, the, the Beatles themselves had had a great sense of humor. Um, mine, yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's that's really about it. What, what's your number 10, David? My number 10 is Mary Poppins, uh, which was a film from And this one, Leonard Maltin referred to it as the finest achievement of his studio when referring to Walt Disney. Um, it's rated around 7.8 on IMDb. It combines, and what was cool, I'm not sure if this was the first instance, because uh, I'm not an expert on these kinds of things, but Certainly, it the, the, there were moments where it combined live action and cartoon, um, mm -hmm. and that was decades before Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, there was the song Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Um, it's got umbrellas, penguins, carousel how, uh, horses, um, uh, women voting, uh, that, that whole sort of backdrop to it, kites. Uh, sliding mm. down banisters it's got basically everything you would want in a film um and and certainly and chimney sweeps are important um and that whole scene 
of the the, the chimney sweeps uh, with Dick Van Dyke on that rooftop was quite something. So it's definitely something worth a watch. And what was strange is one of these top 10 lists had actually listed Mary Poppins Returns higher really than Mary Poppins, the original um, film, which is kind of interesting. But that's my, and the Robert Stevenson was the uh, director and it was from 1964. So that's my number 10. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a wonderful film and, and Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews are just mm. amazing in it. Um, yeah. And it, it's funny when you mentioned those songs, which I think are written by the Sherman brothers, I might be wrong. Um, but um, the songs in that are just incredible. And as soon as you mentioned kite, uh, the let's go fly a kite song came into my mind and Dick Van Dyke's version of, um, or performance of Chim Chimmery uh, is also like an all time song for me. Um, and it's, it's yeah. Yeah. And I do want to watch the, uh, there was a movie some years ago um, where they were trying to, create the film Mary Poppins and it was sort of the background of it. And I just remember how the, um, the, the author, one of the characters in the film was saying, well, we can't, you know, do a certain kind of song. So immediately they covered up the lyrics to supercalifragilistic uh, at the piano. And, and they decided at that time not to do that, that specific song just because the, uh, um, I guess it might've been the author uh, did not want that in there but i definitely want to see that film but yeah definitely mary poppins because i was very young i was born in 62 so mm -hmm. certainly in the early 60s at some point i would have seen that uh, and along with bed knobs and broomsticks and and all of these kinds of films that are really kid-friendly even though some of these kid-friendly films were had scary scenes in them like sleeping beauty and cinderella and things like that sometimes you can be or the sorcerer's apprentice you can have things that can be almost too much for a young child. But oh, sure. Like, the, the, yeah, I was going to say, ahead. there's that famous scene in Bambi that traumatized kids yeah. for decades with the death, spoiler, the death of uh, Bambi's mother in the opening of the film. Um, and I quite liked the actual Mary Poppins Returns with uh, Emily Blunt as Mary. They did a really good job with that, like trying to sort of match up the feel of the original. Yeah, that's uh, on my list and definitely I'm a big fan of Emily Blunt. And I think, and and from all accounts, that's a really good film. So it's definitely, you know, you want something like that. And there was this Muppet film a few years ago that just captured like the essence and definitely the people involved in making Mary Poppins return cared a lot about the original material and tried to treat it properly. So, and that's important, I think. Yeah. And I love the fact too, like, that's a great choice, David, like for some, like it didn't even occur to me to think about Mary Poppins, but it's, it's a great choice because uh, it is one of those ones that, that I'm prone to liking that are, you know, it's, it's fantastic. It's set in our world predominantly. Um, and it's interesting how a lot of musicals, came to mind as well when I was making this list, because I guess essentially, you know, the world of the musical is a fantastic uh, place because all of a sudden you've got 
this universe where people can go from speaking to just breaking into song and dancing to express themselves. Um, yeah, I always so, like those Glee episodes or something and fame and everything else where yeah. suddenly out of the blue, everyone starts doing a number that's fully choreographed and they have all the words and they're all just singing it as if it just occurred to them. Right. Um, is just, it is a fantastic moment for sure in any of these musicals. Yeah. So it's nice that we sort of, uh, although we did not compare notes prior to the show that we both started off with what are, what are musicals essentially. All right. So you're number nine, sir. My number nine, my number nine is The Purple Rose of Cairo, directed and written by Woody Allen. Uh, it was released in 1985, starring Mia Farrow, Jeff Daniels, and Danny Aiello. Um, it's one of the first uh, Woody Allen films that he actually isn't in. You know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. I gotta speak to you. You mean me? Tom Baxter's come down off the screen and he's running around New Jersey. How can he come off the screen? It's impossible. It's never happened before in history. In New Jersey, anything can happen. And I'm going to read to you from my original uh, VHS copy from the back of it. It is the story of a battered wife and beleaguered waitress, Cecilia, played by Mia Farrow, who escapes through the tales of glittery wealth and carefree romance in the movies during the Great Depression. One day as she watches The Purple Rose of Cairo, oh, sorry, The Purple Rose, the character of Tom Baxter, played by Jeff Daniels, turns to the audience and speaks directly to Cecilia. Captivated by her loveliness, he scurries off the screen into reality. Um, yeah, so that's Purple Rose of Cairo. Why do I love it? Uh, we've all dreamt of escaping into our favorite film, but the Purple Rose of Cairo turns this idea upside down with a film character leaving his film to join a member of the audience. Uh, Jeff Daniels is a standout in uh, one of his first leading roles while Mia, while Mia Farrow also delivers Woody Allen's Oscar-nominated script perfectly. Uh, it's a really charming film and one that, as you talked about escapism from your opening quote, it's got that great feeling of just falling into this escapist story. Um, and it's one of my favorite Woody Allen films. Hmm. Um, and I have to um, admit at this point that I've not seen uh, the purple rose of Cairo. So I'll definitely have to see it based on your recommendation. I mean, if there's a Woody Allen film that I could have put in here that has that fantasy element, it would have been the one about Paris where they somehow uh, oh, yes. go back and talk. So, however, the, the premise of it is it's set during Paris, I think in the thirties. Uh, I think, yeah, maybe the 1920s. Yeah. 20s. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 With, with the modern um, writers, with all of the, uh, yeah, the modern writers like Fitzgerald. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which recalls a time of, of, cause I read the book that summer in Paris by Morley Callahan, where he talks about spending time in Paris in the twenties with uh, Fitzgerald with Hemingway and with all of these, these because there was that, that thing going on back then. Um, for my number nine, I've just, this is my last quick sub from this morning. So I just have to do notes from memory because my number nine was originally going to be because I thought we should have a Harry Potter film in the top 10 because uh, it's a great series of films, the eight films. The seventh one was two parts, uh, The Deathly Hallows. And these ones do appear a lot in top 10 or top 20 fantasy films. The ones that show up are either the very first one, 
Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone. Sometimes the Prisoner of Azkaban is actually listed. And the one that also appears most often is the Deathly Howls Part 2, because it brings the right. whole series together. I didn't pick any of those. My original nine was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which I just absolutely love. Um, and that was going to be my number nine because of the hero's journey um harry and and what he's about how he helps cedric diggory how he helps out um the younger sister of one of the competitors it's a great cast if you're anyone who was a british actor in the early Mm. to mid 2000s and you weren't in either some episode of doctor who lord of the rings or harry <laughs> potter then i'm sorry but my apologies because that was a gr- those those series of films yeah were if you were a british actor you needed to be in one of those oh but what it's I incredible do is I change it because i just could yeah and i could not leave off king kong so i dropped harry potter i've added king kong i have no notes on it other than it was a 1933 film that still stands up and can you imagine being in the audience opening night in 1933 and seeing that film Troy could you imagine that oh my god it just would have been remarkable I I would imagine it would have been like the early, uh, uh, not yeah, the Lumiere film where mm. people were running out from the train. You know, I can imagine people just really freaking out. And even the sound, the sound of Kong is really terrifying, um, which was the sound, I believe, of two lions roaring played backwards. Uh, I came across that recently. That's how they did the sound of Kong's roar. Um, well, you have that fence. You have that fence around. You've got that huge gate. You've got Kong himself. You got that fantastic ending. Everything about that film is an achievement, and it just like maybe a spoiler because I think there's a certain film from 1939, not naming names yet, that sort of blew everything out of the water, and everything before that was paled by comparison. Well, King Kong was that film in 1933. Um, it lists here as two directors who were uncredited, uh, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. I guess it's Shodsack, and it adds an IMDb right. rating of 7.9. But definitely I put uh, King Kong as my number nine. Well, I noticed uh, looking at King Kong uh, on the tomato tomato meter, it would it, it actually rated it at ninety nine percent, which was amazing. Wow! Um, but yeah, you know when you when all things are considered, like if that's the thing, it's hard to see Kong now, uh, you know, with modern eyes in some ways. Um, it, I think it holds up dramatically, and as great as the um, visual effects were clearly we've had almost a hundred years of progress since then but yeah so i think it's it's important even the way you framed your question imagine seeing it then um yes but also by the way is we have to just be aware that there was a dino de laurentis film around 76 yeah that's right sure if it was faye dunaway or not but that was not considered or, or who was that uh, well, it was Jeff Daniels, not Jeff Daniels, no, Jeff no, but Bridges. The lady, the, the, the and woman that I know, there. I'm trying to, I can see her. Uh, she was in American Horror Story. Uh, Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang. 
Um, when it comes to King Kong, if you do want to see a more recent version that has more recent good effects, there's actually a good sort of a remake of it would have been one. And I think it was Peter Jackson that did it around maybe 2005. It was around 2005 and it had um, black. uh, um, Here, I'll give it to you because uh, I'm going to segue into that in a second. Or do you want me to just do that right now? Oh, no, no, just do it right now because okay. th- th- that one is actually worth seeing. Like, I would still pick the original over this one, but this one was so well done that it is worth a look-see. Definitely. Sorry, I just need to f- get to my notes. So there we go. Okay, Jack so... Black, that's it. So, actually, what I did, David, was King Kong ended up in my number two spot. All right. Um, and I, uh, I guess... I kind of cheated because I could not decide between the 1933 version and the 2005 version. Um, because for me, the original is super influential. Um, one of my first favorite films. Um, but the 2005 film, um, well, here's what I wrote. Actually, I, I said I cannot choose between the two. They, For me, they have to go together. Peter Jackson's remake is a remarkable love letter to the original and is likely my favorite remake ever. Uh, CGI had come of age by 2005, and now we could see Kong in all his glory, brought to life by Andy Serkis. Uh, Jackson's Kong is one of my all-time favorite in-theater experiences. Uh, when Kong does battle on the Empire State Building, my heart was in my mouth. God knows where my scrotum went, but it wasn't where it was supposed to be. Uh, I also love watching Jackson's recreated Times Square and Central Park of the Great Depression. There was also that beautiful moment before Kong's final battle where he and Anne sit atop the Empire State Building watching the sunrise over Manhattan. Uh, just beautiful and understated. Truly, it was the calm before the storm. Um, and I like that one of the things that sort of always uh, I found jarring with the original was how quickly uh, we get out of the film after the death of Kong, which is sort of a rule in Hollywood storytelling that, you know, when the story's done, the story's done, just roll credits. Um, and that's exactly what they do. I mean, like, Kong in the original film is shot off the Empire State Building. And then we get the line about it wasn't uh, beauty or wasn't the planes that killed the beast. It was it was beauty. Um, And then like credits roll. Well, Denham, the airplane's got it. Oh, no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. They, they give us a little bit more breathing room in, in the uh, Peter Jackson version. And I'm glad that I have a Peter Jackson film on this list for sure. Um, but that was my number two. So we will just, when we get up there, we'll just mention that that was my number two. Yeah. And I definitely um, I, have to watch the remake. I definitely have to see this 2005 version because one of the things in the original and maybe even in the remake is how long it takes, how many, how many minutes of the film you get into before you actually have the Kong. first sighting of Kong. And did you say the Kong before the storm or the calm before the storm? <laughs> I, I heard well, Kong. I, I, I may have said Kong, but I meant to say calm. Um, the, um, yeah, I, I think I saw that in the theater three times. 
because I just loved, again, the experience of it. Um, it looked so good. Now, the f- funny thing is, I find now that f- films, um, it's almost like they age quicker because I watched it, uh, some of it yesterday and, and it felt like already the um, CGI has started to age. Um, mm. But uh, in the theater on a, on a big screen, it was just such a great experience. Okay, so are we moving and what's on? What's the other thing? Naomi Watts, of course, is a standout. She's great. Oh, she that. was so good. Adrian Brody was great. And I actually liked, I didn't think I would like uh, Jack Black in it, who I love his comedic work. I, I wasn't sure how I would feel about him in the film, but I really liked uh, the portrayal. And those scenes in the abyss, oh my God, they are so hard to watch because it's so well done with the, the, the massive insects and the crew getting like devoured by these things. It it was and even the um the the natives on Skull Island are are terrifying and, and much more so mm-hmm. than in a, any other version I think. Yep, yep, absolutely. And and by the way, that is our first connection on on a film because just like our sci-fi, we will have matching films. And then what happens is my matching film, just like as we did here, my number nine was King Kong should obviously be higher on the list, but that because it was on Troy's list, he went to it. So Troy, do you want to do your number eight now? I do. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just shuffling my papers a bit here. My number eight. Here we go. My number eight was one that survived the, the cutting of a few films it almost didn't make make the list but it did and it's in the eight hole um and it is the wonderful wizard of oz um from 1939 directed by victor fleming with the black and white scenes were directed by king vidor um clearly uh, you probably know this film you've probably heard of it in the past starred judy garland frank morgan ray bulger burt lar Jack Haley and Margaret Hamilton. Uh, it received a 98% rating on the tomato meter. Um, why do I love it? Well, I mean, everybody loves it, but the wizard of Oz is to me, the mother of all fantasy films. We have the voyage to a strange land and the return home. We have a group of disparate characters who must work together to achieve their goals and defeat an evil force. On top of this, we have flying fucking monkeys. Also, you can watch it while listening to side one of Dark Side of the Moon. Um, And we also got from this film, um, do you remember what's called the March of the Winkies, Dave? It's the song that the, uh, the guardsmen sing outside of the uh, Wicked Witch's Castle, which is the O-E-O-Yo. Anyway, for a while there in the 80s, it was used a lot in uh, in music. I remember Mm. Prince sampled it. And uh, there was another sort of uh, like R&B or early hip hop song that based its whole thing around the March of the Winkies.
Wizard of Oz, 1939, you know, one of the best films ever had to be on the list. Okay, so your number eight is The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And that on my list, I have it a bit higher. I've got it as my number one. Oh, nice. Overall. Uh, So The Wonderful Wizard of Oz defines a timeless classic. Now, I thought they should have a subheading. It should be The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and then the colon, The Fellowship of the Red Slippers. But I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I um, like it. So uh, the the uh, a black and white beginning, unbelievable, goes to Oz, color, fantastic. The songs, one of the greatest musicals of all time, perhaps the greatest. It's underrated. It's underappreciated. It doesn't get the credit. Uh, even the Lollipop Guild song, the, the, the song about the, the witch being dead, um, the, 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 the path and so on and you know if i only had a brain and so there's just song after song in fact at some points it has a song that's absolutely stunningly brilliant that segue immediately connects to another one and then another one and it just says how do you put three fantastic songs all together in one string um, I think that happened. I have to, to watch the film again, obviously, is when the witches died and then they do this, then this, then this. And it just fantastic. It's about the journey, quests, kinship. It's a morality tale. It's a lot about empathy, how you treat others, um, a great, uh, great villains, um, uh, surrender Dorothy. And I always thought it would be cool if there was someone whose name was Dorothy Surrender, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's, for me, I can't imagine a film better. Uh, so it is my number one um, uh, overall, and it still holds at 1939. Can you imagine that? In 2039, there'll be 100 years, and that's not yeah. that far away. Um, and... That's it. I, I can't say anything more about the um, and that song and Judy Garland singing uh, "Somewhere Over the Rainbow" is just still oh. an emotional powerhouse, and it sort of defined her and her. You know, she had a great career, and she did so many other films, and 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 was amazing. But that sort of defined her and and what yeah. she was about. And it's amazing to think that the studio wanted Shirley Temple. But uh, Shirley Temple couldn't get out of her contract with the studio she was in. And you think of the performance of Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Garland, and it's just hard to imagine anybody else pulling that off. Um, I mean, it, it, I think well, if they could, if they could have time traveled and brought back Eric Stoltz, who was the original <laughs> guy from for uh, the, the um, Back to the Future. And and put him in a dress. But I'm just kidding. That was wrong. I, I may have gone too far, but too far. absolutely. Now, I mean, she was great. And you know, The Wizard of Oz is so omnipresent in our culture. You know, it's like it's been referenced so many times. And as great as the series by uh, Frank Oz, it, Frank, sorry, Frank L. Baum, not Frank Oz. That's uh, that's Grover's voice, Frank Oz. <laughs> that would have been great too. Um, and also, I guess the voice of um, Yoda. Um, but uh, yeah, the series by Frank L. Baum is wonderful. But that film really 
just created this whole iconography for the story and you know and you can't separate the songs like you say like you when you think of this the, the story now you you hear the songs in your head yeah the other thing is and at some point i will have to read the the source material because i i, I won't mention who it is but a friend of mine who is in the in the uh uh, I knew I know through uh, conventions years ago, a, a good friend of um, uh, my brother-in-law, Rob Sawyer, um, mentioned how much he he um, did not like and hated the film. Uh, but that was partly because it veered too far away from the source material. This was not like, like it still captures enough of it in, in my mind, even though I haven't read it. I mean, it's clearly has got the story, but it diverged for this person. It diverged so far from the original stuff that he he did not like it. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you have to set apart yes. what that is and say, okay, well, of, of its own and what it tries to do, it's very good. But it would be great, and it's possible that maybe one should. It's, it's someone with today's technology, someone could try to bring back what the original L. Frank Baum stories were and bring it much closer to the original, sort of like who goes there, the, the right. film, the, 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 the story where the 1982, the thing by John Carpenter is so much closer to the source material, whereas a thing from 51 wasn't, but it captured the essence. The, I think that you should have to separate the 1939 film from the source material and just sure. treat it as its own thing. Yeah. It's very much like the, the shining syndrome where over the years there has been this divide. And as you know, I'm a huge King fan. Mm. And this is the way I've always thought of the shining is that it's, it's a one, it's like, it's a wonderful film. It's one of the best horror films of all time, but it's, it's a very weak adaptation. So you, you have to judge it as, you know, it's a different entity. You can't, you can't expect film to always, uh, be as true as you would like to the source material. Sometimes it's just a jumping off point. Um, and I think that's really the best way to do it. You really have to like judge a film on its own merits. Um, yeah. That, right, that's what so, I would say. Absolutely. So let me go on to mine. Cause you just did your number eight. I have to, and which was my number one, I have to do my number eight and see if it appears on your list. And if not, you'll go on to your number seven. So number eight I have is groundhog day. It was a 1993 film uh, directed by Harold uh, Ramis, and uh, um, it was rated at about 8.1 on IMDb. And what is there to say about this film, and why would it appear in anyone's top 10? Um, it, it started a whole generation of its type of film that the idea and, and and things like Buffy and Angel and so many different series have done their Groundhog Day episode and even I think it was called Edge of Tomorrow or something like that which was a Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt film that basically had the repetition that whole idea of repeating a day and and um, being stuck it may have started with Groundhog Day. I'm not an expert on this. It's possible that it was a film before that that had that kind of trope or that idea, but Groundhog Day certainly uh, blew it, that whole thing out of the water. It was just so brilliant. It is very well done. Um, 
what would you do if you had a day? How would you redo it? And I think, Troy, you're going to be adding in little sound clips or various things. And one scene, just of Bill Murray, who was a standout, talking about the groundhog like he, Murray, is an enlightened poet. He's already gone through the day so many times that finally he's got a whole crowd of people as he's reporting. And what he is saying is so brilliant, so emotional, so powerful that you think he's talking about a groundhog seeing its shadow. And here is someone waxing eloquent about this with everyone on his every word that he's speaking. When Chekhov saw the long winter, he saw a winter bleak and dark and bereft of hope. Yet we know that winter is just another step in the cycle of life. But standing here among the people of Punxsutawney and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts, I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. From Punxsutawney, it's Phil Connors. So long. How was that for you too? Hey man, you touched me. Thanks, Larry. Thank you. I gotta go. Phil, okay? mm. that was surprising. I didn't know you were so versatile. I surprise myself sometimes. Well, where are you going? Would you like to get a cup of coffee? I'd love to. Can I have a rain check? I've got some errands I've got to run. Okay. Phil, errands? What errands? I thought we were going back. You know, I had not seen it like I had not seen it until like five or 10 years. I just somehow missed it. And I'd heard all these things about how great it is. The same thing with Dances with Wolves. I, I hadn't seen that until five or 10 years ago. And when enough people say that it's a great film, you have to trust that. And when I finally saw it, I said, there isn't one week scene. There's this whole thing, him trying to... Um, uh, change his life and his ways and again the whole morality kind of thing so i don't know if groundhog day ended up on your list or if you have any comments about groundhog well day. groundhog day just it was one of those ones it was when i did my brainstorm of my 10 favorites it was i think the second film i wrote down mm. um it, it unfortunately didn't make the final cut because there were other things i had to consider but i do love the film um, I remember seeing that in the theater and be, being blown away because I was a Twilight Zone fan mm. uh, at the time. Mm. And to me, this felt like an expanded episode of, of the Twilight Zone. The thing that I love about it as well is, um, you know, around that time, Bill Murray was was doing a lot of these sort of um, almost like one dimensional characters that were you know often it was like the shyster he sort of plays that character in scrooged Mm. um but groundhog day there is this wonderful transition where we go from the character being one dimensional uh, and and an ass basically and and he has that transition where he becomes you know fully fully formed and i guess really in in many ways it's almost like they're playing on the idea of um eastern reincarnation where where the idea is you know you repeat your life until you learn to progress to become a better person Mm. to become a higher being and that's sort of what is happening with um with phil in in groundhog day um 
anyway, it's, it's, it's like got these wonderful little things and it, and it's surprising, especially on the first view where you don't expect the film to go to these places. And it also has these hilarious little moments. Like I love that scene where, uh, Phil's driving with the the groundhog beside him. And for me, it's a flashback to, um, to meatballs, not meatballs. Sorry. It's a flashback to Caddyshack where he's that character hunting the, uh, the gophers, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there, there's all these, these scenes with Murray and the gophers. And in this scene, we have uh Murray with the groundhogs and it's also a little bit like do you remember Toonsis the driving cat from SNL (laughs) it it sort of reminded me of that it definitely had like this SNL callback feeling to it anyway it's a wonderful film I wish I had room for it in my top 10 because I love this film so much so thank you for getting it in your list David yeah and the other thing I just want to finish off with the groundhog day is the idea of repetition because I'm a poet and I use it maybe too much, but it, if it's done right, repetition can be a very powerful tool to use in your arsenal where you repeat the same line again and it, yeah. it has that much more power or that thing. And there's this moments where he meets someone like it's maybe one of the easiest films to possibly in some cases easy and hard to film because you got a scene where he's going out and walking on the pavement and some some person approaches him and talks to him and so on and then suddenly that's repeated again but it's changed differently maybe he's trying to run further away from him but then later on eventually he actually greets the guy remembers his name and gets this whole thing going and how this scene keeps repeating but it's better each time that's so right. um th- enough of that so did you want well, to go yeah, I, I just I just wanted to mention there sometimes a film will include a song and and it could be a song that's been around forever, but from that point on, you associate the song with the film. Um and so that happens in Groundhog Day. It it happens with uh the Sonny and Cher song I've Got You Babe, which is the song that is playing on the radio every time his alarm goes off. And so every time I hear I've, uh, I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher, I think of Groundhog Day. Another film that, that did that for a long time was uh, Reservoir Dogs with the song Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheels, um, a song I always liked from the 70s, but uh, it sort of conditioned me to cringe whenever I heard would hear that song come on the radio because I would just picture this scene of this this uh, policeman getting his ear cut off by, by this, uh, uh, you know, hood anyway. Um, yay. Groundhog day. So I guess we're moving on to number seven, David. Yep. You're seven. Yeah. Okay. Number seven for me was being John Malkovich, uh, which was released in 1999 directed by Spike Jones. Uh, it was written by Charlie Kaufman, uh, who was a genius and maybe a little bit insane. Uh, it was starred John Cusack, Cameron Diaz, Octavia Spencer, John Malkovich. Um, it received a 94% tomato meter rating. Seven and a half, right? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer building. My name is Craig Schwartz, and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. 
Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. <laughs> so, honey, have you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? <laughs> And then after about 15 minutes... And that's not me. I didn't say that. You're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're about to be just subconscious. Do you think that it's kind of weird that John Malkovich has a portal? I mean, do you think that it might have some sort of significance? What is going on? Huh? I discovered that portal. It's my head! Malkovich, Malkovich... Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. Malkovich! Malkovich. Um, why do I love it? Um, actually, before I do, I just I, I'm just going to give a brief uh, breakdown. Uh, Cusack plays a uh, um, a puppeteer who takes on this clerical job, um, and the the place he has to go to work at. Uh, is on the seven and a half floor of a, a building. Um, so um, Octavia Spencer ends up like having to jam uh, a crowbar into the elevator doors to have it stop between the two floors uh, so he can get out and go into this office where he ends up finding behind a uh, a filing cabinet a portal into John Malkovich's brain um, in which he can see everything that John Malkovich is experiencing so why do i love it uh it's smart it's funny it's fucked up it's being john malkovich it's so original and idiosyncratic i felt it had to be on my list it's definitely one of those damn i wish i'd come up with that concept uh type of films a lot of charlie kaufman scripts have a meta quality to them but you have to love the fact that he makes john cusack's character a puppeteer um in being John Malkovich, we have so many layers of reality or unreality going on. It just hurts the brain, much like Fight Club, also from 1999. Uh, Cameron Diaz is fantastic as Cusack's underwhelming girlfriend. Uh, supposedly the makeup department had a hard, hard time making her look homely. Um, and kudos to Malkovich for uh, bringing it all to life for us and, and letting this film happen. Honey, don't take a shortcut. You always get us lost. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki. What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. Where are you going? Hey! You said just a quick look. Now let's go back. You shouldn't be here. Get out of here now. What? Leave before it gets dark. You've got to get across the river. Go. I'll distract them. Mommy! Help! I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming! Ah! Come on, wake up! I'm 
afraid. I'm Master Haku. No! I just want to help you. No! In worlds seen and unseen, where spirits are transformed, <laughs> and sorcerers rule, Witch Ibaba controls you by stealing your name. If you completely forget it, you'll never find your way home. Your name belongs to me now. One girl's future depends on her judgment. Aren't you getting wet out there? I'll leave the door open for you. Her courage. It's Haku! He's hurt! Haku! Haku! This way! Her loyalty. Remembering one thing above all else. I want you to know my real name. It's Chihira. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Experience a magical movie phenomenon. Embraced by all the world. Stop. Let's go! Prepare to be spirited away. Spirited away is my number seven because I felt that you have to have something from Studio uh, Ghibli and uh, uh, a Miyazaki film in the top ten. That's just me. I'm not trying to make anyone else that may come up with their own top ten list. Not naming names who may not have a <laughs> an anime or manga or whatever this series of uh, films. I think it's considered anime, which is about as big a thing. There's a convention that friends of mine run called Anime North. Pre-pandemic was getting twenty to 25,000 people attending it in late May in Toronto. They needed several hotels and a huge amount of space. Um, anime North, I've actually been on a couple panels years ago with my sister, uh, Carolyn, about um uh doing um um haiku um but miyazaki is brilliant spirited away and i'm a bit behind in my anime and i do have to we will be doing an anime um episode so we'll have to get caught up with all of the uh, great anime films, and there have been great ones. I believe Charlene Challenger mentioned, I think, that my neighbor Totoro is her favorite genre, which is science fiction, fantasy, horror film of all time. I have not seen it, which is a terrible thing to say. And if I did see it, I would probably push Spirited Away off my list and move it in. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other uh, great Studio Ghibli films um, that I, that should be in the top ten list. So Spirited Away, incredible, the wonderful storytelling, the fantastic animation. This puts the, 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 this basically you take the best Disney film, the classic ones where they had thousands, you know, thousands of people working on it, and it took years to be able to design and craft. That's the kind of quality that the studio Ghibli brings to animation. Um, yeah, one I haven't of the, seen. Yeah, go ahead. Please. One of the things I love about uh, Miyazaki's films in general are they're almost 
antithetical to the mindset of of early animation, especially animation that uh, I guess either was aimed at children or like involved uh, children's characters, is that it, it was not frenetic, which, which I love about it. Uh, the Miyazaki stuff. Um, it's, it's absolutely not frenetic. It's, it takes its time. There's a calmness to it, a tranquility mm. to the storytelling that is wonderful. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, I considered having uh, Totoro on my list. It just fell outside, but I uh, also love Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle. Mm. Um, I think those are maybe the only three I've seen, but I love them all. My daughter, who is in her 20s, is a huge fan. It's like her favorite stuff on earth. Yeah, um, and they're supposed to be Princess Mononoke or, or something like that. That's supposed to be considered yeah. a great film, too. And yeah, there's there's just a, a great number of this. It was a coming of age kind of story. Uh, it, it was a sort of a hero's journey, or maybe it's Chihiro's journey. Um, stuff with the parents and magic realism, the dreamlike quality. Um, and you're right about it. It's just, you know, scene after scene, you've got this child trying to make their way through, and it just starts very normal, and then it goes into this whole other world. Um, it's just. It's just so good. Definitely, we have to do uh, an anime um, convention, and we—I think we know a few people that would be excellent guests for that. For um, sure. So my, so my one is spirited away. So what do you got for your number six? Well, my number six, which I guess is probably our last one for this episode, um, is Field of Dreams. I have just created something totally illogical. If you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. If you build what, who will come? Didn't say. I hate it when that happens. Me too. Who's your invoices? Ray is. I know what if you build it, he will come means. Ooh, why do I not think this is such a good thing? Daddy, there's a man out there in your lawn. Are you a ghost? What do you think? You look real to me. Hi! You can see it. This is really interesting. You believed in the magic. It happened. Isn't that enough? Annie, it's more than that. I feel it as strongly as I've ever felt anything in my life. There's a reason. Go the distance. Did you hear the voice, too? Did you hear it? Go the distance. Yes. Our grave is dead. He died in 1972. Are you Moonlight Graham? No one's called me Moonlight Graham in 50 years. Unbelievable. It's more than that. It's perfect. You build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere, and you sit here and you stare at nothing. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Burt Lancaster. Sometimes, when you believe the impossible, the incredible comes true. 
field of dreams. Um, the field of dreams would probably be in a list of my all-time favorite, personal favorite films. It would probably be in that top 10, uh, maybe a top 20, <laughs> but um, it is on my my list of favorite fantasy films. Um, it was released in 1989. It was directed and written by Phil Alden Robinson. The music, which is wonderful, is by James Horner. We've had his uh, music in a number of different uh, films that we've talked about. It received an 87% tomato meter rating. Why do I love it? Well, in the film Moneyball, Brad Pitt's character, the general manager of the Oakland A's, says it's hard not to be romantic about baseball. Field of Dreams, based on the novel by Canadian W.P. Kinsella, is all about that romance. Baseball is a sport more open to fantasy and speculation than any other. Field of Dreams delivers fantasy like no other sports film. A young farmer begins hearing a mysterious voice telling him things like, if you build it, he will come and ease his pain. After he plows under his cornfield to build a baseball diamond, baseball players from 60 years ago show up to play amongst themselves. There is a final scene, which for me is unrivaled by any film in any genre. Um, I'm not going to to ruin it here because it's it's that good if you haven't seen it. Um, but please don't turn the lights back on until I find the Kleenex box because that scene ruins me every time, even though I've seen it at least once a year since it came out in 87. Um, so uh, that that's it for me. A Field of Dreams is definitely a fantasy film, a lot of magic realism, I suppose, in it. Um, and just a wonderfully undertaken. Mm. Okay, so a field of dreams. This is our second um, match um, of ones that are on both of our lists. I have field of dreams as number two. Nice uh, on my list. Um, Kevin Costner, um, James Earl Jones at their best. I'm already getting emotional just thinking about the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Burt Lancaster, as you said. The emotional, the, the the magical and mythic of it, baseball, sacrifice, the power of dreams, the great beyond nostalgia, uh, ghosts having morals, the ending, as you had mentioned. Um, I can just imagine just Siskel and Ebert, which I believe both gave it a thumbs up and were very emotional when they talked about the film. Um, absolutely loved the film as well. Um, it's real and yeah, definitely have a box of Kleenex with you. And I don't even think you have to love baseball to get it, but it does help, I think. Um, yeah. but you've got that, that sense of emotional and empathy and power. Also, you get that wonderful thing that happens in things like Narnia, where when you get too old, you can't go into Narnia, which is itself uh, a very right. emotional, powerful thing or you can't see the magic or you can't see the ghost or anything else because you're an adult uh, and there's a scene near the end where that is revealed and, and what happens with that and not losing that magic which reminds me of not the natural but there was this mm. one um, where it's a baseball film where someone's in their 40s and they oh. try to um, the rookie play again the rookie yeah there's which uh, the 
with uh, yeah, not, was it Randy Quaid or no Dennis Quaid? Yeah, uh, Randy Quaid. Yeah, 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 Randy Quaid and um, or is it Dennis Quaid? It's Dennis Quaid, right? Or is it Randy Quaid? It's one of those Quaids. We'll edit all of this stuff yeah. out. Um, that is amazing too. So don't and the idea of not giving up on your dreams is just an absolutely uh, powerful thing. You know, the idea of the magic of childhood. Timothy Busfield uh, from Thirty Something. Um, oh yes, and the pressure that they're under because they because he's plowed over this cornfield. Maybe they are going to lose a house because they can't make uh, the rent and or make the payments and so on. So yeah, definitely Field of Dreams without spoiling anything near the end is a must see. You know something. And, go ahead. Something incredible about that film too. I mean, there's there's a lot that is um, that makes it sort of a unique film. But one of the things from a structural point of view um, is. Now, I mentioned the final scene. Now, I'm actually talking about a, a segment of that scene. But if you were looking at the screenplay of that film, the last at least 20 minutes of that film is the same location, which is unheard of. Um, it, it sort of begins with, a, with well, the argument between um, the brother-in-law and uh and the character ray um and then the daughter ends up choking like that's sort of the beginning of that scene and then they remain in that location for the next 20 minutes which is really remarkable like if you were looking at a screenplay mm. you know it would it would it would begin with you know like the exterior ball field day and the only thing that changes for the next 20 minutes as it transitions to night um that's really unheard of but it doesn't feel in any way like oh my god it's still this scene because a number of different things dramatically happen within that setting over Mm. the next 20 minutes um that always strikes me it's like oh my god they're still in this scene which is sort of great if you're shooting because you've got your setup and I'm sure it was over a series of days, but they didn't have to, you know, bug out to go to different places. Anyway, yeah. I just I just wanted to mention that how I found that kind of remarkable thing. Also, actually, the the director and writer Phil Alden Robinson didn't do a lot of things, and and considering how masterful this film is, that always surprises me. Um, and but those performances are just so good in that film. And it is yeah. actually, yeah. I don't know if you've ever read the book, but it's actually one of those films that I think is, is better than the source material. I, I, I do enjoy the book, but they ironed out a number of things and I think make for a more satisfying narrative with the film from going from film, going from book to film. Yeah. And we definitely need to do an episode just on cornfields. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to do is my number six is the Lord of the Rings. And out of the Lord of the Rings, there were three films. They all came out one year after another, and they were all just, you know, were great films. And in fact, it was unusual, but the third film, The Return of the King, actually won Best Film, which is very unusual for anything that's in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror, at least of that time. Things have changed a bit now. Things like Shape of Water, um, and things like, I guess, Parasite and some of these other films that cover into the unusual. 
are starting to get more recognition now, but it was one of the early ones. And I think it may have won for the Return of the King, partly because the earlier ones didn't. And it was sort of a thing that said, this is the final one of this series. Um, I think it's possible that if they had done a fourth Hobbit film, it may have been the best you know, uh, film of all time. They only made three, which was too bad, but I'm partly kidding of The Hobbit. But let's get back to The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I was just trying to be funny there, and I'm not sure if that worked. <laughs> but uh, for The Lord of the Rings, people pick one of the two films. They pick either The Fellowship of the Ring because it was the first one to introduce everything, and it was just so great that it basically was sort of like the first Harry Potter film. When they talk about the Harry Potter, it's always the first or the last one, or maybe Prisoners of Azkaban. With this one, it's the first or the third. I picked The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but most people list their, the uh, Return of the King as the best overall. Um, and I'm not sure if there's much more to say about it. I mean, I don't want to go into the plot and go into everything. I just remember being in the theater and it was yeah. a three hour mark. Everything has happened. And then, you know how the, the, the three volumes are just volume one, two, three. It's not like they're independent things that all right. end properly. It's like right. one huge story that's split into three books. So sure. at the end of the film, I remember in the audience where they're running across the field, waiting for the next adventure, and then the credits come on. And I remember someone in the audience complaining and said, what the hell? And because they weren't expecting this to end on that non note of them right. just running across this field. And this was after three hours yeah. where people wanted more. And that's how good that film was. Yeah. I've, I've uh, yeah, experienced that with Dune as well. Uh, you know, who people didn't realize it was going to sort of truncate the story in half. So that you'd have to see the second film, as well as I think the uh, not Endgame, but the one prior to Endgame, the Avengers film, uh, Infinity Wars, I think it was called. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, I wish I had more of an appreciation for these great films. My problem is whenever I like this is me. This is like a uh, an allergy. Whenever I have sat down in the theater to watch um, the Harry Potter films or Lord of the Rings, I fall asleep. And I, it's like, I don't know what it, what it is. I think, I think because the narrative uh, builds so slowly um, and I, I'm in a comfortable seat, I'll fall asleep. Same with the, with the Harry Potter films. I noticed it's one of the first films to constantly have like a blue filter whenever you're uh, at um, or often at Hogwarts and it's a night scene, it's dark. And if I'm in a comfortable theater seat uh, watching a scene in the dark that is, you know, it's not as, as a horror fan, they're not ever as intense as a lot of the things that I watch and like. So um, those scenes like don't have me on the edge of my seat enough in the, in the Potter films. Mm. Um, anyway, I know they're great films. I know that's, that's, that's why this is one of those things where I recognize objectively these are great films and they would be in a top 10, but as my subjective ones, they're not. But, but I'm glad you've got that up there. And I really do wish that I could get over. I need to take like a lot of coffee or something to watch these films and, and watch it standing up maybe. Okay. So on that note, what we wanted to do was just do a real quick recap because we've now done our 10 through six in some cases some of these will also appear in our top five but that's okay so quickly my top my 10 through six 10 was mary poppins nine was king kong the original eight was groundhog day seven was spirited away and six was lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring and, and Troy, did you want to read your list 
Yep. My, my 10 to six was number 10, Yellow Submarine. Number nine, The Purple Rose of Cairo. Number eight, The Wizard of Oz. Number seven, Being John Malkovich. And number six, Field of Dreams. Yep. And for the d- duplication where we both have that on each other's list, my number nine, King Kong, was on, on Troy's list of his top five. And on Troy's 10 through six, The, Wiz- the Wonderful Wizard of Oz and Field of Dreams um, appeared in my top five. So that's where the duplication is. So that's our top 10 through six at the moment. Go ahead, Troy. Uh, and we will be back with our next episode where we will give you our top five favorite fantasy films of all time. Yeah. And in case you just watch this one episode, listen to this one episode, um, we do want to mention that we do have, and this is Trice, the thing that you usually do at the end of each episode. If you want to mention just a few places where people can catch us. Well, definitely check out our website. It's two numeric two of dot CA. Um, we are on Facebook at Tooled Farts Talk Sci-Fi. And for some reason, some issues right now with Twitter, hopefully when you hear it, it'll be okay. But it's uh, on Twitter. It's at two numeric two old farts sci-fi. Uh, please like, subscribe, tell a friend, do whatever you can. Tell us what you think. All right. So what we've got, that was our first part one of our top 10 fantasy film uh, films episode. I am David Clink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Wolves Farts. Talk sci-fi. Beauty. Beauty. Anyways. Beauty. Music. Cue the music. Music.